When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New York as a psychological object in my mind was the place for adults. It is the adult place. I aspired to live in New York when I was young because I was impatient with being a child and couldn't wait to be a grown-up. And yet, ironically, when I got to New York, I felt like I was the kid who was in this adult place. That's the novelist Jonathan Franzen talking. You'll hear more with him soon. And I'm Adam Coleman. Welcome to the Writers' Institute, the audio version of the New York State Writers' Institute. The Writers' Institute brings writers together with the public. That means readings and talks. It, it means a lot. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to Jonathan Franzen about what exactly can happen at an author's event. The answer is something more than book promotion, it turns out. You might not expect a writer to love these kind of public events. You might have the idea of writers as solitary figures making work for other loners. But listen to this episode. Listen to the writers mixing it up in the world. They'll include here Jamaica Kincaid and Joseph Heller. And listen to this conversation with Jonathan Franzen. He's the author of novels including The Corrections and Crossroads and Freedom. He's a public figure, a public intellectual. He was, in fact, on the cover of Time Once, next to the words, great American novelist. This is somebody who knows what it's like to write novels and then take them out into the world. Franzen's books are themselves closely bound to public readings, closely bound to their audience. This includes the corrections, some of which took off early at a reading. At a time when there's talk of authors' book tours kind of vanishing or getting scaled back or just switching to Zoom, I asked Jonathan Franzen what we'd lose if the age of the in-person book event ends. If we lose live book events, I would experience it as a great loss because I really enjoy them. I may be in a minority among writers. I think a lot of people don't actually enjoy reading from their work and are shy around readers. Um, to me, it's consistently moving to do an event and look out at people who care about books and then to have a chance to find some kind of moment of connection afterwards. You typically have 30 to 60 seconds to have a meaningful interaction with someone in a signing line, and I don't even care about signing their books. It's just nice to have that person-to-person, in-the-flesh exchange. And I, it, to me, it would be a little bit like going to a situation where no one actually went to church. If you're a believer, yeah, you've got your private belief and you've got your, your private faith, but much of the experience of religion, I'm not saying that literature is a religion, but I'm also not saying that it's not a religion. If you take away the human interaction in a church, something is lost. You don't feel part of a community in the same way. And when I used to go to church many, many years ago, 
a big part of the experience was being around people who were gathering together and being quiet together, singing, listening, uh, speaking out loud. All of that is integral to the experience of any faith, even if it's a secular faith like literature. And when you're writing in a quiet room somewhere, do you have in your mind that church, do you have in mind that public in-person possibility for the thing you're writing, or is it strictly a matter of you in the page or you in the screen? Well, there are two questions there. One is whether I write with a view to reading something aloud, and the other is, do I have that book tour in my mind as I'm working? The answer to the latter question is yes, and I have it in mind as a reward. That's why this past fall, when Crossroads was published, it was a deep disappointment that I couldn't go to some cities in the US. I typically would go straight from there to Europe. Um, the European audiences tend to be great. And in Germany, tend, they tend to be very large. And that whole experience of it's a different city, it's a different night, it's going to be typically, especially in Europe, a very long signing line, many, many people to greet. I later hear from some of those people. I, I've established email correspondences with people I've met in a signing line. I find that after the years in the dark room to be really a reward. This is what it's all for. And I think, again, I'm perhaps in a minority, but to me, it's like being in a studio recording your album and then taking it out on the road and you, you feed off the energy you get in the performance. When I was writing my first two novels, I, I never thought about reading aloud. I would speak the dialogue aloud as I was writing it to the extent that at the end of a long day with a lot of dialogue, I would find myself hoarse without understanding why. And it turned out without even knowing it, I was speaking the dialogue aloud. One reason for that was we basically just didn't do many public readings in the 80s. I was very isolated, but in general, the bookstore reading, for example, hardly existed back then. That was something that developed in the 90s. And I think it was 1996 or so, 1995, 1996, I was invited to do a reading on the Lower East Side with my friend David Means. And there were some Paris Review people there, and I took some pages that I didn't know what I was, whether they were going anywhere, they ended up being in the corrections. And one reason that they ended up being in the corrections was that people really liked what I read. But I also, for the first time, because this was almost the first time I'd read aloud for my work, I was so aware suddenly of lines that could go, words that could go, that, and I was hearing my own prose in this different way because I was having to perform it. And um, particularly if you are a comic writer, as I kind of consider myself to be, you're very attuned to what's getting a laugh and what is getting in the way of getting a laugh from something. My writing really changed permanently as a result of that one experience of, of reading those pages aloud. And to that extent, I think when I am in the dark room writing, there is a part of me now that has internalized that experience and, and is writing with a view to, be, to, to something being read aloud and to making sure it's as economical as it can possibly be. It sounds like a playwright's work. Absolutely. I began as a playwright. That was the first thing I published when I was still in high school was a one-act play. And uh, the only writing workshop I ever took was a playwriting workshop. Uh, so that's, that's where I come from initially. 
And much more recently, I've done a fair amount of screenwriting, and I can feel how the discipline of making sure that people want things in every scene, I can feel how that has begun to inform the fiction writing. And sure, it's some lines work great when you are alone and, you, and they're sitting there on the page. You may notice them and say, hey, that's a good line, or you may be unaware of them. And then you can just feel how you're dying when you, when you have to read that line. When you write something and then there you are in the bookstore or at a university reading, it becomes participatory. The audience is part of the show in the signing line, but also in the Q&A. That period of questions and rapid responses from the author that follow the reading, usually. Here's a clip of Joseph Heller, author of Catch-22 at the New York State Writers Institute in 1995. He's answering one of those classic Q&A questions. Where do your ideas come from? Specifically here, there's been a question about where Heller's ideas for the structure of Catch-22 came from. Uh, he's curious about the structure of Catch-22 and how the, the, the plan came to me. Uh, I can't explain, I can just tell you how it did happen. I, I thought it was time for me to try writing a novel, and the opening sentences came to me one night when I was trying to sleep. And on top of that came a whole rush of ideas about the book, actual language. And that rush of ideas pretty much dictated the structure. Something subconscious in me gave me the idea of writing a novel that way, in which 80 or 90% of what happens has happened before the novel begins. Back now to a question for Jonathan Franzen. The thing that struck me is the classic, where do you get your ideas from? Q&A question, and the also kind of classic response that it's subconscious to an extent. Is this a question you wrestle with when you're doing events? I mean, it, it comes up. You must, you must have heard it. How do you respond to it? Question number one. And number two, how do you feel about the it's subconscious answer? Subconscious is an interesting word. It, it has a Freudian flavor to me. I actually prefer unconscious, which has, of course, an even more Freudian flavor, but I consider it essentially proven empirically from my own experience that the mind works on problems when you're not conscious of it working on them. I know this because I will be working on the Sunday Times Magazine spelling bee, and I will be stumped. I can't find the word that uses all seven letters. I'll go do something else and just in the middle of whatever I'm doing without having given it a thought, it can be two hours later, suddenly the word is sitting there in my head. Is that subconscious? Is it unconscious? I don't know. I think what it means is that you have this, this kind of spotlight of real-time consciousness that you can train on your own mind, but typically is trained on something outside you. And when it's trained on something outside you, it doesn't mean that those modules, those mechanisms those circuits in the brain aren't continuing to work on a problem. And in that re regard, what Heller said makes perfect sense to me. The thing about the Q&A, it is my favorite part of any event, partly because there's always at least one question that is just mind-blowing. It comes out of nowhere. Not always, but there's often a question that, like, no one has ever asked me that question. Where did you think of that question? And, and I'm so impressed. 
Um, and it's so exciting that people who've gone, have come to the reading have been, you know, they have their own thoughts and they've been, they've been thinking about books and they've been thinking about literature and sudden, and they've come up with these amazing questions. But in a way, it's just as exhilarating to answer the question you're asked every night because I don't like to give the same answer twice. I don't want to go out on the stage and deliver canned answers. We've all been to performances like that where you, you get the sense that the, the author is just not quite faxing it in, but saying things that he or she has said a million times before. And I don't want to do that. And the pressure to extemporize, to come up with some idea, however small, some little story, some anecdote, it could be something that happened that very day, something that is fresh. And it, it's, it's about being present in the moment. And, and I want to be present. When I'm on stage, I, I really want to be there and be with not a generic audience, but be with these specific people and answer in a very specific way whatever comes up, even if it's a question I've heard 50 times before. Coming up, actual readings from Joseph Heller and Jamaica Kincaid, and more Jonathan Franzen on the way. We're back in the Writers' Institute, here with Joseph Heller in 1995. The author of Catch-22 takes his audience, which means us, first through Catch-22, the satire set in World War II that follows the character Yosarian. Then, Heller leads us into the Catch-22 sequel, Closing Time. It was over 40 years ago that I had an idea. The idea was to write a novel, and the only idea for novel I had was Catch-22, which begins this way. It was love at first sight. The first time Yosarian saw the chaplain, he fell madly in love with him. Yosarian was in a hospital with a pain in his liver that fell just short of being jaundice. The doctors were puzzled that it wasn't quite jaundice. If it became jaundice, they could treat it. If it didn't become jaundice and went away, they could discharge him. But this just being short of jaundice all the time confused them. So Yosarian begins in the middle of things, in the hospital with a condition that might, have, might not become jaundice. What I also go on to say is that actually the pain in his liver had gone away, but Yosarian didn't say anything and the doctors never suspected. A second character in the novel is a squadron commander who's Major, Major, Major. That is his name, given to him by a father with a sense of humor. And because he had that name, he's promoted to the rank of Major by a faulty component in the computer machine as soon as he enters. That allows me to begin a chapter with these words. Major, 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 major had had a difficult time from the start. Like Minovichivi, he had been born too late. Now, major, major had been born too late and too mediocre. Some men are born mediocre. Some men achieve mediocrity. And some men have mediocrity thrust upon them. With Major Major, it had been all three. Even among men, men lacking all distinction, 
He inevitably stood out as a man lacking more distinction than all the rest. And people who met him were always impressed by how unimpressive he was. <laughs> now, it's well, about page 100 into the novel, these two come together in what we call the confrontation because novels do deal with conflicts and they are each part of a conflict. When Yosarian, after overcoming many uh, difficulties, succeeds in getting into Major Major's office to, for an interview with him and to complain, he does, tells Major Major he doesn't want to fly any more combat missions. He has, home, he has flown 51. He doesn't want to be in the war anymore. Why not, Major Major asked. I'm afraid, said Yosarian, honestly. Oh, that's nothing to be ashamed of, Major Major counseled him. We're all afraid. I'm not ashamed, Yosarian explained. I'm just afraid. What could you do, Major Major asked himself. What could you do with a man who looked you squarely in the eye and said he would rather die than be killed? A man who was at least as mature and intelligent as you were, and who you had to pretend was not. What could you say to him? But suppose everybody on our side felt that way, Major Major pointed out persuasively. Then, said Josarian, I'd certainly be a damned fool to feel any other way. <laughs> what could you possibly say to him, Major Major wondered. One thing he could not say was that there was nothing he could do. To say there was nothing he could do would suggest he would do something if he could and imply the existence of an error or injustice in official policy. He must never say there was nothing he could do. I'm sorry, said Major Major, but there's nothing I can do. <laughs> and what you have there are, are two people fairly sympathetic each in a position for which neither can provide any solution. The novel was published in 1961, and it still surprises people to hear that the reviews were not unanimously good. In the Sunday Times, which is still the most influential of periodicals, the reviewer there decided that Catch-22 gasps for want of craft and sensibility is repetitious and monotonous. It fails. It's an emotional hodgepodge. It was no novel. And then, as of now, one of the most prestigious periodicals we have was the New Yorker magazine. And there, the reviewer decided that Catch-22 doesn't even seem to have been written. Instead, it gives the impression of having been shouted onto paper. What remains is a debris of sour jokes. And in the end, Heller, which is this Heller, wallows in his own laughter and finally drowns in it. <laughs> Given such enthusiastic praise, I decide I could devote myself to being a novelist. And Thirteen years later, I, I published my second novel, Something Happened, and then following that, there were three, four, or five other novels. 
And then finally, about six or seven years ago, it was time to write another novel. I had no idea in mind, and then I decided on this one called Closing Time. You know, Sarin is alive at the end of Catch-22. He's in very deep trouble, but he is alive. And then 40 or 55, 50 years later, he's brought back into Closing Time in Chapter 3 in a title, in a chapter titled significantly, I thought, Mr. Osarian. It's the first time in my experience I ever thought of calling him Mr. He is 68 years old, the age I was when I thought I would complete the novel, and in the midst of a second divorce. And he is in the hospital again, beginning the way he didn't catch 22. In the middle of his second week in the hospital, Yosarian dreamed of his mother, and he knew again that he was going to die. The doctors were upset when he gave them the news. <laughs> we can't find anything wrong, they told him. Keep looking, he instructed. <laughs> You're in perfect health. Just wait, he advised. Yosarian was back in the hospital for observation, having retreated there once more beneath another barrage of physical symptoms to which he had become increasingly susceptible since finding himself dwelling alone again for just a second time in his life, and which seemed one by one to dissipate as soon as he described or was tested for each. Just a few months before, he had cured himself of an incurable case of sciatica, merely by telephoning one of his physicians to complain of his incurable case of sciatica. He could not learn to live alone. He could not make a bed. He would sooner starve than cook. This time, he had gone bolting back in with a morbid vision of a different morbid vision shortly after hearing that the president, whom he did not like, was going to resign and that the vice president, whom he did not like even more, would succeed him. And shortly after finding out that Myla Minderbinder, with whom he too now had been unavoidably linked for something like 25 years, was expanding beyond surplus stale commodities into military equipment, with plans for a warplane of his own that he intended to sell to the government, to any government, of course, that could afford to buy. There were countries in Europe that could afford to buy, and in Asia and the Mideast too. The vision of the morbid vision he had experienced was of a seizure or a stroke, and it set him reminiscing again about durable old Gustav Aschenbach, alone on his mythical strand of beach and his immortal death in Venice, worn out at 50, in a city with a plague nobody wished to talk about. In Naples, far back, when assembled in lines for the troop ship sailing him home after he had flown 70 missions and survived, he'd found himself behind an older soldier named Schweik and a man-born Krautheimer who had changed his name to Joseph K to blend more securely into his culture. And his name, like Schweik's, had meant not much to him then. 
Given the choice, Yossarian still preferred to live. He ate no eggs and, although he had no headache, swallowed his baby aspirin every other day. Let's travel now to 1991, but still in the Writers' Institute, to hear Jamaica Kincaid introducing and reading from her novel Lucy. You've heard a sample of this in our first episode, but now for more. Um, I'll just tell you, it's about a young woman who comes from some islands in the south of the larger continent, which is in the north. And I never say the name of the island, I don't think. And I never say the name of the continent, but you can just imagine it's, we're speaking north and south. Uh, and she comes to work as an au pair for a family with four children, um, a husband and wife and four children. And actually she becomes an au pair uh, in retrospect. Um, it was only as I was writing it that I realized she had been an au pair, but actually at the time this happened, she was really a servant, and I can tell you why. An au pair is a young woman from Europe who takes care of children for a year, and then she returns to her home, but it's not expected that she'll take care of children for the rest of her life, unless, of course, they are her own. And um, a servant um, is a young woman, but of a different complexion. And uh, she, um, that's usually her job for the rest of her life, unless, well, the world's changed again. So maybe that's not quite as true. But in this girl's case, it would have been true. She was really meant to be a servant, but it was only through one of those quirks that uh, it was only a year out of her life. And the quirk is that she is who she is. So she does this for a year and then she goes on to become something else. And so this is the last few months in her life that she's uh, the au pair and then moves out and leaves this family. I suppose finds something of herself. I can't say she finds herself. I don't think you ever do. But it's a good reason for living. So the chapter is called Lucy. It was January again. The world was thin and pale and cold again. I was making a new beginning again. I had been a girl of whom certain things were expected, none of them too bad. A career as a nurse, for example, a sense of duty to my parents, obedience to the law, and worship of convention. But in one year of being away from home, that girl had gone out of existence. The person I had become, I did not know very well. Oh, on the outside, everything was familiar. My hair was the same, though now I wore it cut close to my head, and this made my face seem almost perfectly round. And so for the first time ever, I entertained the idea that I might actually be beautiful. I knew that if I ever decided I was beautiful, I would not make too big a thing of it. My eyes were the same, my ears were the same, the other important things about me were the same. But the things I could not see about myself, the things I could not put my hands on, those things had changed and I did not yet know them well. I understood that I was inventing myself and that I was doing this more in the way of a painter than in the way of a scientist. 
I could not count on precision or calculation. I could only count on intuition. I did not have anything exactly in mind, but when the picture was complete, I would know. I did not have position. I did not have money at my disposal. I had memory. I had anger. I had despair. I was born on an island, a very small island, 12 miles long and 8 miles wide. Yet, when I left it at 19 years of age, I had never set foot on three quarters of it. I had recently met someone who was born on the other side of the world from me, but had visited this island in which my family had lived for generations. This person, a woman, had said to me, what a beautiful place, and she named a village by the sea, and then went on to describe a view that was unknown to me. At the time, I was so ashamed I could hardly make a reply, for I had come to believe that people in my position in the world should know everything about the place they are from. I know this. It was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1493. Columbus never set foot there, but only named it in passing after a church in Spain. He could not have known that he would have so many things to name, and I imagined how hard he had to rack his brain after he ran out of names honoring his benefactors, the saints he cherished, events important to him. A task like that would have killed a thoughtful person, but he went on to live a very long life. <laughs> I had realized that the origin of my presence on, on the island, my ancestral history, was the result of a foul deed, but that was not what made me, at 14 or so, stand up in school choir practice and say that I did not wish to sing, Rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, Britons never, never shall be slaves. That I was not a Briton and that until not too long ago, I would have been a slave. My action did not create a scandal. Instead, my choir mistress only wondered if all their efforts to civilize me over the years would come to nothing in the end. At the time, my reasons were quite straightforward. I disliked the descendants of the Britons for being unbeautiful, for not cooking food well, for wearing ugly clothes, for not liking to really dance, and for not liking real music. <laughs> if only we had been ruled by the French. They were prettier, much happier in appearance, so much more the kind of people I would have enjoyed being around. I once had a pen pal on a neighboring island, a French island, and even though I could see her island from mine, when we sent correspondence to each other, it had to go to the ruler country thousands of miles away before reaching its destination. The stamps on her letter were always cancelled with the French words for liberty, equality, and fraternity. On mine, there were no such words, only the image of a stony-faced, sour-mouthed woman. <laughs> I understand the situation better now. I understand that in spite of those words, my pen pal and I were in the same boat. 
but still I think those words have a better ring to them than the image of a stony-faced, sour-mouthed woman. Coming up, back to Jonathan Franzen on the drama of public reading. I'm Adam Coleman, and you're still listening to the Writers' Institute, the sonic version of the New York State Writers' Institute. When I hear old tape of Writers' Institute events, there's usually a really audible excitement. You can hear it kind of buzzing. Maybe it's just the old tape, but I think it's a mood in the room. And that mood can be powerful. You can feel that writers can make things happen in the world, social things, emotional things, maybe political things. Here's William Kennedy, founder of the Writers' Institute, describing how a whole social, political world swirled and took shape around his literary idea in the 1980s. The legislature and the State University of New York, or SUNY, all kind of gravitated together around an idea prompted by Kennedy's literary success at the time of the publication of his novel, Ironweed. I got a MacArthur Fellowship, and I was suddenly, from being a starving writer, you know, constantly threatened with foreclosure on on the family ranch, I was suddenly uh, independently wealthy. (laughs) $56,000 a year, tax-free for five years. Not only that, they, they gave me $15,000 $15,000 a year to give away to anybody I wanted to give it to if there was a nonprofit institution. I decided to give it to the English department at SUNY. I gave it with the proviso that it had to be used to bring writers in. <laughs> there was a fellow named Vince O'Leary who was the president of the university at that time, and he said that, um, he said, this is a great idea, you know, to bring writers in and Marvelous, he said. I'll I'll match this money. So we we had thirty thousand dollars a year for writers. All of a sudden, as we progressed, we called it the Writers Institute. And um, the first guest was Saul Bellow. I called him up, and he said, "All right." And he said, he, he said to me, he said, "You get a little money, and all of a sudden, you turn into a patron of the arts." <laughs> This is special circumstances. It's not exactly that. He came and we had a thousand people turned out to fill the ballroom and standing room only and so on. And and it was such a success and it got such press on it. A couple of weeks later, we were down in the legislature in the Capitol or someplace and everybody was around. The governor was there. And and, uh, one of the... uh, Legislators, a fellow named Billy Passanante, who was a an assemblyman from Greenwich Village, and he dealt with writers all the time. You know, he, and Greenwich Village is full of the Beat Generation, and so on. So, and he said, you know, this is this thing with Bellow and your institute out there. He said, that's. He said, we shouldn't have to go to Iowa to learn how to write. We should be able to get that right here in New York State. So I said, I couldn't agree more. 
So he said, well, if you would, would you run it if we made this into a state institution? And I said, sure, okay, why not? So when writers step out into the world, big things can happen. Jonathan Franzen's already explained the vital experience of writers meeting a crowd. And I said to him, that presence with the audience is, it is what I can feel when I'm at an event, when I'm in the audience and when it's going well, it does feel like there's something happening in that instant that could not be otherwise happening. I kind of want to talk about that, the mood in the room, the way that the room, there's a kind of vitality in that interaction. I have a clip. This is Jamaica Kincaid. And I just, I like the way you can hear, even before the reading starts, there's this kind of laughter, maybe nervous or hopeful laughter, anticipatory laughter, and she's just sort of sounding out the room. Is there someone mumbling? (laughs) If you're going to mumble, do it now, because it'll distract me when I'm reading. Oh, there are people upstairs. Um, I, I'd like to read to you from uh, uh, this book, Lucy, and um, I'm going to read the last chapter, and it's called Lucy. Do I sound terribly loud? No? Just curious. It's very odd to hear your own self, because you don't usually hear your own self, um, which is perhaps not a good idea. If you heard yourself, you wouldn't speak so much. Um, But I'm going to read to you from this book, and I feel I should tell you quickly what it's about, because uh, I I don't know if you've read it. I suspect if you had read it, you wouldn't be here. So you have a writer, somebody who is almost professionally self-conscious or professionally conscious of things, noticing all these details aloud just in in the setup. And there seems to be a peculiar liveliness just because of that noticing does a writer's mindset your mindset your attention to things bring certain elements to life when you're talking to a crowd the state you want to get to when you're writing some people could call it flow i find flow a very new age kind of term i don't care for it but my word for it is cooking and when you're cooking it's like everything Every idea that comes to you, you know it's going to work. <laughs> For half an hour, an hour, if you're lucky, two hours, it's just like every sentence comes out and it's happening and it's popping and it's fresh. That's the state that you ideally want to be in on stage as well, where there's nothing you can say that's going to be wrong. Yes, there is always a censor <laughs> on duty, making sure you don't say something offensive. And every once in a while, you encounter an audience, as I once did in Brazil, perhaps due to a bad interpreter in their headsets, um, where they're just sitting there stone-faced and, and every single thing you say is falling flat. But, but by and large, um, the state of cooking is you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're just doing it. And, and I could hear that in, in Jamaica Kincaid's, she's just following the thought, and she's also getting laughter. And so the laughter is essentially saying, we like you, go on, do more of that. And so she's encouraged to follow the thought. And that's very akin to you've written, you're cooking and you see the sentence, you say, wow, that's a good sentence. And it's sort of like the the page is telling you, do more of that, please. Here's another tricky aspect to readings. Sometimes a writer will deliver harsh truths in addition to a sympathetic connection. There can be something abrasive 
something challenging, something off-putting being spoken. And the crowd reacts, jolted. Here's Don DeLillo with a letter from Nelson Algren about stunning a crowd. It's from a Writers Institute event with DeLillo and Russell Banks about Nelson Algren's The Man with the Golden Arm and the Otto Preminger film adaptation with Frank Sinatra. Each of us, coincidentally, met Algren. Russell met him in 63, I met him in 64. We both profited enormously from the association. And uh, in connection with this movie, I'd like to read uh, one paragraph from a letter I got from Nelson in 1967. Uh, There's a reference here to World War III, which is in fact a reference to the war in Vietnam. I'm so used to living on the brink that I don't mind it anymore. It's like living in a house on stilts all your life. When the water comes in, it'll come. Maybe I won't be home, is my thinking. Not only that, but it pays. Every time I make a talk announcing we are now in World War III, which I've been doing for over a year, I get $500 and expenses. Talked at SMU in Dallas last week in an address so moving that the question and answer period raised the single question. What did you think of Sinatra in the movie? (laughs) To Jonathan Franzen, again, do you specifically, do you try to avoid that kind of momentum or that kind of emotional response, the kind that basically cancels out the possibility of questions? No. I think partly in my experience, the people who ask questions come with the question. Sometimes it's in response to something I've read or said, but but often they seem ready-made. In my work, yeah, I feel like I'm trying to tell the truth, and the truth is usually welcome to almost no one. And especially if it's an emotional truth or a psychological truth, it can be very upsetting. And I'm aware of that. And I try to structure narratives that are very readable so that even if you are not liking what you're being exposed to, you keep turning the pages. When it comes to the events, I have to say, I won't read something aloud that I don't think is going to get laughs. I won't read a non-funny part of a book. That's partly my own insecurity. I do need to hear that the audience has not fallen asleep. And the one good way to do that is to get them laughing. If they're laughing, they're paying attention. Clearly, they're laughing at the right points, so they're not falling asleep. I'm not dying. And so what I, what I guess I would say is that the work itself is a combination of entertainment and serious self-expression, serious examination. And the latter part, the, the serious part, will often make people uncomfortable. When I go to do an event, I consider my job to be entertainment. You've come out on a Tuesday night, it's raining, there are many things you could be doing, you're there, and I don't want you to go home feeling like you haven't had a good time. The seriousness I leave to the work. It doesn't mean I don't try to you know, read something that's moving. I certainly wouldn't read something that's stupid. I'm trying to diffuse the, the seriousness really all the time because my conception of a public event is one where people who care about books get together, enjoy each other's company. And to me, I would, it wouldn't occur to me to be in an adversarial relationship with the audience. 
except at that one terrible thing in Brazil where I was not aware that we were in an adversarial relationship until afterwards. Was there any confrontation afterwards or did you just walk away in a a kind of bad mood. There was terrible press. And in the, you know, in the years before, my, my Brazilian publisher, who's a friend of my American editor, you know, he'd been super hospitable and must come to Brazil, you must stay at my country house, and you're hot sh- and we we love your work. And all that stopped <laughs> after that one event. <laughs> and I, I I haven't heard from Luis in years. So yeah, there there can be an aftermath. I mean you can you can fall so flat that it actually has consequences. And that you're never welcome back in Brazil now. I've never yeah. been invited back to Brazil. No. <laughs> That's heavy. In in most cases, it, this has been a real vehicle for travel, not just travel, but for actually engaging the world and having this sympathetic, emotional connection with the world, with a lot of different people all over the place. You've also gone home. Your first book, your first novel brought you home to St. Louis. What's that like when you're doing a book event at home? Well, there are several homes, and I have found that although I'm generally not nervous, like Pulse 60 uh, before going on stage almost anywhere. When I when I do a New York event, I'm nervous. That was certainly true during the many years, 25 years when I lived there, but it's it, it's also true now. And I've heard musicians say the same thing, that it's, it's scary to play New York. Um, going home to St. Louis the first time for the 27th City, which was a book about St. Louis, St. Louis was basically a character in it, I did go back as the the hometown boy who'd made good, and I I did TV shows. I appeared on the local news on a couple channels, and I was terrible because I had no idea what I was doing on TV. And we'd been slotted at seven minutes, or and after two and a half, they'd say, "Well, thank you for coming on," and then they were scrambling to find something else. Why? Because I'd been answering in this single terse sentences, every question, not understanding that what you're supposed to do is get on there and be cooking and just like let loose and tell some stories and, 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 and be present. I was not present. I was basically seeing it as a grilling. I don't think I went back at all for my second novel, uh, had a great reception for the corrections. And then when I went back for freedom, it was the most amazing thing. It was in, I don't know if it was the cathedral. It was in some thousand seat church downtown and it was, it was full. And all these people who had been my neighbors and friends of my parents, they were now very old. They were well into their 80s, in some cases, even early 90s, in some cases with walkers. And they they were among the crowd. And it was incredibly validating. And the, the, the terrible thing was that my parents couldn't see it because they had died 15 years earlier. Living in New York, publishing center, a place of public events that elicit nervousness. What was that like? What, what did that do to your work? What did that do to your head? What were your New York years for you? New York as a psychological object in my mind was the place for adults. It, it is the adult place. And I aspired to live in New York when I was young because I was impatient with being a child and couldn't wait to be a grown-up. And yet... Ironically, when I got to New York, I felt like I was the kid who was in this adult place. And I think that some of my nervousness about performing in New York has to do with that status as the adult place 
in my head. Anywhere else I, I go, I feel like an adult. Hey, I'm from New York. And yet when I'm in New York, I feel like a kid and I want to impress and I want to be accepted by the adult place. I think that's really what it comes down to in a deep way. I think it's, you know, it really has to do with just how much the place mattered to me. It's not that the audiences in Kansas City or St. Paul don't matter to me, but the place doesn't matter to me. It doesn't have any any particular valence. And as you know, when you're talking to someone where it matters, a job interview or the person you've fallen in love with and are hoping likes you, I mean, those, then, then there's a certain kind of nervousness that you don't feel with anyone else. Jonathan Frenson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's been a pleasure, Adam. And great, great clips from the archive. I think this is an amazing thing you're doing. And thank you for listening to the Writers' Institute, the show from the New York State Writers' Institute, based in Albany, New York, founded by the novelist William Kennedy. This show is brought to you by LitHub. You can find them at lithub.com. And thank you again to Jonathan Franzen. You can read his novel Crossroads and read The Corrections and Freedom and The 27th City and his essays. Read Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy. Read Joseph Heller's Catch-22. And then do not stop reading things. Come back for the rest of this series, too, to listen to more from authors like Margaret Atwood, speaking here at the Writers' Institute in 1998, answering a question about writing children's books. I've written four children's books, and every single one of them was because somebody made me do it. (laughs) There are four good causes, namely the publishers. (laughs) And here she's answering a question about where ideas come from. The question is, where do my poems come from? I don't know. You don't really know where your primary ideas come from. They just, they arrive. It's the same with novels, there's a a given part, and then you have to work at hammering that into something. Whereas with a lyric poem, if you're lucky, it might take an hour or three days. With a novel, it's more likely to take three years. That, again, was Margaret Atwood in 1998, and I'm Adam Coleman in 2022. Thank you. Thank you.